Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and we are wrapping up not only this message, but an entire book of messages about the sovereignty of God by Charles Spurgeon. This is part two of his Providence as seen in the book of Esther. Roman numeral three in the message. Next, we will notice that God, in his providence, tries his people. You must not suppose that those who are God's servants will be screened from trial. That is no part of the design of providence. If you be without chastisement, says the apostle, then are you bastards and not sons. God's intent is to educate his people by affliction. We must not therefore dream that an event is not providential because it is grievous. Nay, you may count it to be all the more so. For the Lord trieth the righteous. Observe that God tried Mordecai. He was a quiet old man, I have no doubt, and it must have been a daily trial to him to stand erect or to sit in his place when that proud peer of the realm went strutting by. His fellow servants told him that the king has commanded all men to pay homage to Haman, but he held his own. Not, however, without knowing what it might cost him to be so sternly independent. Haman was an Amalekite, and the Jew would not bow before him. But what a trouble it must have been to the heart of Mordecai when he saw the proclamation that all the Jews must die. The good man must have bitterly lamented his unhappy fate in being the innocent cause of the destruction of his nation. Perhaps, he thought within himself, I have been too obstinate. Woe is me, my whole house, my whole people are to be slain because of what I have done. He put on sackcloth and cast ashes on his head and was full of sorrow, a sorrow which we can hardly realize. For even if you know you have done right, yet if you bring down trouble, especially destruction, upon the heads of others, it cuts you to the quick. You could bear martyrdom for yourself, but it is is sad to see others suffer through your firmness. Esther also had to be tried. Amid the glitter of the Persian court, she might have grown fearful of her God. But the sad news comes to her. Your cousin and your nation are to be destroyed. A sorrow and dread filled her heart. There was no hope for her people, unless she would go in unto the king that despot from whom one angry look would be death. She must risk all and go unbidden into his presence and plead for her nation. Do you wonder that she trembled? Do you marvel that she asked the prayers of the faithful? Are you surprised to see both herself and her maids of honor fasting and lamenting before God? Do not think, my prosperous friend, that the Lord has given you a high place that you may escape the trials which belong to all his people. Yours is no position of ease, but one of the hottest parts of the battle. Neither the lowest and most quiet position nor the most public and exposed condition will enable you to escape the much tribulation through which the church militant must fight its way to glory. Why should we wish it? Should not the gold be tested in the crucible? 
Should not the strong pillar sustain great weights? But when the Menai Bridge was first flung across the straits, the engineer did not stipulate that his tube should never be tried with great weights. On the contrary, I can imagine his saying, Bring up your heaviest trains and, and load the bridge as much as ever you will, for it will bear every strain. The Lord trieth the righteous, because he has made them of metal which will endure the test. And he knows that by the sustaining power of his Holy Spirit they will be held up and made more than conquerors. Therefore is it a part of the operation of providence to try the saints. Let that comfort those of you who are in trouble at this time. But we must pass on to note, fourthly, that the Lord's wisdom is seen in arranging the smallest events so as to produce great results. <clears throat> we frequently hear persons say of a, a pleasant or a great event, what a providence, while they are silent as to anything which appears less important or has an unpleasant savor. But my brethren, the place of the gorse upon the heath is as fixed as the station of a king, and the dust which is raised by a chariot wheel is as surely steered by providence as the planet in its orbit. There is as much providence in the creeping of an aphis upon a rose leaf as in the marching of an army to ravage a continent. Everything, the most minute as well as the most magnificent, is ordered by the Lord, who has prepared his throne in the heavens, whose kingdom ruleth over all. The history before us furnishes proof of this. We've reached the point where Esther is to go in unto the king and plead for her people. Strengthened by prayer, but doubtless trembling still, Esther entered the inner court, and the king's affection led him instantly to stretch out the golden scepter. Being told to ask what she pleases, she invites the king to come to a banquet and bring Haman with him. He comes, and for the second time invites her to ask what she wills, uh, up to the half of his kingdom. Well, why, when the king was in so kind a spirit, did not Esther speak? He was charmed with her beauty, and his royal word was given to deny her nothing. Why not speak out? But now she merely asked that he and Haman will come to another banquet of wine tomorrow. Oh, daughter of Abraham, what an opportunity hast thou lost! Wherefore didst thou not plead for thy people? Their very existence hangs upon thy entreaty, and the king has said, What wilt thou? And yet thou art backward. But was it timidity? It's possible. Did she think that Haman stood too high in the king's favor for her to prevail? It would be hard to say. Some of us are very unaccountable. But on that woman's unaccountable silence... Far more was hanging than appears at first sight. Doubtless she longed to bring out her secret, but the words came not. God was in it. It was not the right time to speak, and therefore she was led to put off her disclosure. I dare say she regretted it and wondered when she would be able to come to the point, but the Lord knew best. 
After that banquet, Haman went out joyfully at the palace gate, but being mortified beyond measure by Mordecai's unbending posture, he called for his wife and his friends and told them that his riches and honors availed him nothing, so long as Mordecai, the Jew, sat in the king's gate. Well, they might have told him, you'll destroy Mordecai and all his people in a few months, and the man is already fretting himself over the decree. Let him live, and be content to watch his miseries and, and gloat over his despair. But no, they counsel speedy revenge. Let Mordecai be hanged at the top of the house. Let the gallows be set up at once. And let Haman early in the morning ask for the Jew's life. And let his insolence be punished. <coughs> Go, call the workmen. Let the gallows be set up at a great height that very night. It seemed a small matter that Haman should be so enraged just at this hour. But it was a very important item in the whole transaction. For had he not been so hasty... He would have not gone so early in the morning to the palace and would not have been at hand when the king said, Who is in the court? But what has happened? Why, that very night, when Haman was devising to hang Mordecai, the king could not sleep. What caused the monarch's restlessness? What happened it on that night of all others? Why? Ahasuerus is master of one hundred and twenty and seven provinces, but not master of ten minutes of sleep. What shall he do? Should he call for soothing instruments of music, or beguile the hours with a tale that is told, or with a merry ballad of the minstrel? No. He calls for a book. Who would have thought that this luxurious prince must listen to a reader at the dead of night? Bring a book! What book? A volume perfumed with roses, musical with songs, sweet as the notes of the nightingale? No, no, bring the chronicles of the empire. Oh, dull reading that. But there are 127 provinces. Which volume shall the page bring from the recorder's shelves? He chose the record of Shushan, the royal city. That's the center of the empire, and its record is lengthy. In which section shall the reader make a beginning? Well, he may begin where he pleases, but ere he closes the book, the story of the discovery of a conspiracy by Mordecai has been read in the king's hearing. Was not this a singular accident? <laughs> singular, if you like, but no accident. Out of ten thousand other records, the reader pitches upon that one of all others. The, the Jews tell us that he began at another place, but that the book closed and fell open at the chapter upon Mordecai, be that as it may. This is certain, that the Lord knew where the record was and guided the reader to the right page. Speaking after the manner of men, there were a million chances against one that the king of Persia should, in the dead of night, be reading the chronicle of his own kingdom, and that he should light upon this particular part of it. But that was not all. The king is interested, and he had desired to go to sleep, 
but that wish is gone, and he is in haste to act. He says, this man Mordecai has done me good service. Has he been rewarded? No. Then cries the impulsive monarch, he shall be rewarded at once. Uh, who is in the court? That was the most unlikely thing in the world for the luxurious Ahasuerus to be in haste to do justice, for he had done injustice thousands of times without remorse. And chiefly on that day, when he, that day when he wantonly signed the death warrant of that very Mordecai and his people. But for once the king is intent on being just, and at the, at the door stands Haman. <laughs> you know the rest of the story, how he had to lead Mordecai in state through the streets. It seems a very small matter uh, whether you or I shall sleep tonight or toss restlessly on our beds. But God will be in our rest or in our wakefulness. We know not what his purpose may be, but his hand will be in it. Neither doth any man sleep or wake, but according to the decree of the Lord. Observe well how this matter prepared the way for the queen at the next banquet. For when she unfolded her sorrow and told of the threatened destruction of the Jews and pointed to that wicked Haman, the king must have been the more interested and ready to grant her request from the fact that the man who had saved his life was a Jew and that he had already awarded the highest honors to a man in every way fitted to supersede his worthless favorite. All was well. The plotter was unmasked. The gallows ready. And he who ordered it was made to try his own arrangements. Well, our next remark is, The Lord in his providence calls his own servants to be active. This business was done, and well done, by divine providence. But those concerned had to pray about it. Mordecai and all the Jews outside in Shushan fasted and cried to the Lord. Unbelievers inquire, what difference could prayer make? My brethren, prayer is an essential part of the providence of God. So essential that you will always find that when God delivers his people, his people have been praying for that deliverance. They tell us that prayer does not affect the Most High, cannot alter his purposes. We never thought it did, but prayer is a part of the purpose and plan and a most effective wheel in the machinery of providence. The Lord sets his people praying and then he blesses them. Moreover, Mordecai was quite sure the Lord would deliver his people, and he expressed that confidence, but he did not therefore sit still. He stirred up Esther, and when she seemed a little slack, he put it very strongly, If thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then enlargement and deliverance will arise from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Nerved by this message, Esther braced herself to the effort. She did not sit still and say, well, the Lord will arrange this business. There's nothing for me to do. But she both pleaded with God and ventured her life and her all for her people's sake and then acted very wisely and discreetly in her interviews with the king. And so, my brethren, we rest 
confidently in providence. But we are not idle. We believe that God has an elect people, and therefore do we preach in the hope that we may be the means in the hands of his Spirit of bringing this elect people to Christ. We believe that God has appointed for his people both holiness here and heaven hereafter. And therefore do we strive against sin and press forward to the rest which remaineth for the people of God. Faith in God's providence, instead of repressing our energies, excites us to diligence. We labor as if all depended upon us. And then we fall back upon the Lord with the calm faith which knows that everything depends upon him. Well, now we must close our historical review with the remark that in the end the Lord achieves the total defeat of his foes and the safety of his people. Never was a man so utterly defeated as Haman. Never was a project so altogether turned aside. He was taken in his own trap, and he and his sons were hanged upon the gallows set up for Mordecai. As for the Jews, they were in this special danger that they were to be destroyed on a certain day, and though Esther pleaded with the king for their lives, he was not able to alter his decree, though willing to do so. For it was a rule of the Constitution that the law of the Medes and the Persians altered not. The king might determine what he pleased, but when he had once decreed it, he could not change it. The people, feeling it better to submit to the worst established law than to be left utterly to every capricious whim of their master. And so what was to be done? The decree was given that the Jews might be slain, and it could not be reversed. But here was the door of escape. Another decree was issued giving the Jews permission to defend themselves and take the property of any who dared attack them. Thus, one decree effectually neutralized the other. With great haste, this mandate was sent all over the kingdom, and on the appointed day, the Jews stood up for themselves and slew their foes. According to their tradition, nobody attempted to attack them except the Amalekites, and consequently only Amalekites were slain, and the race of Amalek was on that day swept from off the face of the earth. God thus gave to the Jews a high position in the empire. We are told that many became Jews or were proselytes to the God of Abraham because they saw what God had done. As I commenced by saying that God sometimes darted flashes of light through the thick darkness, you'll now see what a, a flash this must have been. All the people were perplexed when they found that the Hebrews might be put to death, but they must have been far more astonished when the decree came that they might defend themselves. All the world inquired, why is this? The answer was, the living God whom the Jews worship has displayed his wisdom and rescued his people. All nations were compelled to feel that there was a God in Israel, and thus the divine purpose was fully accomplished. His people were secured. His name was glorified to the world's end. Now, from the whole, we learn the following lessons. First, it is clear that the divine will is accomplished and yet men are perfectly free agents. Haman acted according to his own will. Ahasuerus did whatever he pleased. Mordecai behaved as his heart moved him and so did Esther. We see no interference with them, no force of coercion. Hence, the entire sin and responsibility rest with each guilty one. And yet, 
acting with perfect freedom. None of them acts otherwise than divine providence had foreseen. I can't understand it, says one. My dear friend, I'm compelled to say the same. I do not understand it either. I've known many who think they comprehend all things, but I fancy they had a higher opinion of themselves than truth would endorse. A certain of my brethren deny free agency, and they so they get out of the difficulty. Others assert that there is no predestination, and so they cut the knot. As I do not wish to get out of the difficulty, and have no wish to shut my eyes to any part of the truth, I believe both free agency and predestination to be facts. How they can be made to agree, I do not know or care to know. I'm satisfied to know anything which God chooses to reveal to me and equally content not to know what he does not reveal. There it is. Man is a free agent in what he does, responsible for his actions, verily guilty when he does wrong, and he will be justly punished too. And if he be lost, the blame will rest with himself alone. But yet there is one who ruleth over all who, without complicity in their sin, makes even the actions of wicked men to subserve his holy and righteous purposes. Believe these two truths, and you will see them in practical agreement in daily life, though you'll not be able to devise a theory for harmonizing them on paper. Next, we learn what wonders can be wrought without miracles. When God does a wonderful thing by suspending the laws of nature, Men are greatly astonished and say, this is the finger of God. But nowadays they say to us, where is your God? He never suspends his laws now. Well, now I see God in the history of Pharaoh, but I must confess I see him quite as clearly in the history of Haman. And I think I see him in even a grander light for, and I say it with reverence to his holy name, it is a somewhat rough method of accomplishing a purpose to stop the wheel of nature and reverse wise and admirable laws. Certainly it reveals his power, but it does not so clearly display his immutability. When, however, the Lord allows everything to go on in the usual way and gives mind and thought, ambition and passion their full liberty, and yet still achieves his purpose, it's doubt doubly wonderful. In the miracles of Pharaoh, we see the finger of God. But in the wonders of providence, without miracle, we see the hand of God. The hand of God. And today, whatever the event may be, whether it be the war between the Germans and the French, or the march into Kumasi, or the change of our own government, the attentive eye will as clearly see the Lord as if by miraculous power the hills had, had leaped from their places or the floods had stood upright as a heap. I am sure that God is in the world, I and, and is at my own fireside, and in my chamber, and manages my affairs, and orders all things for me and for each one of his children. We need no miracles to convince us of his working. The wonders of his providence are as great marvels as miracles themselves. Next we learn how safe the church of God is. At one time the people of God seemed to be altogether in Haman's power. Nero once said that he wished his enemies had but one neck, that he might destroy them all at a blow. Haman seemed to have realized just such power. 
and yet the chosen nation was delivered. The Jewish people lived on until the Messiah came and, and, and does exist and will exist till they shall enjoy the bright future which is decreed for them. And so is it with the church of God today. The foes of truth can never put out the candle which God has lit, never crush the living seed which the Lord Jesus has sown in his own blood-bought people. Brethren, be ye not afraid, but establish your hearts in God. Again, we see that the wicked will surely come to an ill end. They may be very powerful, but God will bring them down. They may be very crafty and may plot and plan and may think that even God himself is their accomplice because everything goes as they desire. But they may be sure their sin will find them out. Or they may dig deep as hell, but God will undermine them. And they may climb as high as the stars, but God will be above them to hurl them down. Wicked man, I charge you, if you be wise... Turn you from your career of opposition to the Most High. You cannot stand against him, neither can you outwit him. Cease, I beseech you, from this idle opposition. Hear the voice of his gospel, which says, Confess your sin and forsake it. Believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the great atoning sacrifice. And even you shall yet be saved. If you do not do so, upon your own head, shall your iniquities fall. And last of all, let each child of God rejoice that we have a guardian so near the throne. Every Jew in Shushan must have felt hope when he remembered that the queen was a Jewess. Today, let us be glad that Jesus is exalted. He is at the Father's side, the man of love, the crucified. How safe are all his people? For if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There is one that lieth in the bosom of God who will plead for all those who put their trust in him. Therefore, be ye not dismayed, but let your souls rest in God and wait patiently for him. For sooner shall heaven and earth pass away than those who trust the Lord shall perish. They shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. Amen. It's from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 20. And that, that concludes this message and this book. If I read a Spurgeon sermon again, and it is likely, Lord willing, it won't be from this book anyway. We'll find something else. Those are all available at the... Um, if you'll get your PhD, that is your Puritan hard drive, you can go to puritandownloads.com. That's the Stillwaters Revival books, folks, puritandownloads.com, and ask them about this PhD. It'll make you smarter than that other kind will, for sure. All right, uh, I won't tell you about everything else that's available on this site because it takes a while, and maybe you don't have a while today. So you get on back to whatever you were doing. So will I. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we will talk again real soon. But, oh, yeah, let me just give this program note here. I only got one day left in this week for those who are with me in real time. You're listening to this on a Thursday. There's only Friday left. I can't get another whole sermon of Spurgeon on one day. So let's go ahead and get back to Ezekiel, okay? Part four of Ezekiel next time. God bless.
Bye-bye.